talked about David last week. I want to stay on the subject of David this morning, and I want to talk about facing our giants. We all, every one of us, face giants at one time of our life or another. Now, by giants, I mean those things that seem to be insurmountable problems, insurmountable issues. We try to slay these giants. Sometimes we're successful at it. Sometimes the giant just seems to grow stronger and stronger. The giant could be any number of things. could be a giant of fear. A giant could be some type of personal sin that we fall into again and again. It could be a giant of addiction, something that really has a grip on our life. Our giant could be an unbelieving spouse or a prodigal child. We pray for them, we ask the Lord to reach them, but sometimes they just seem to drift farther and farther away. The giant could be a health issue. Lots of people face health issues. Now, I've been very fortunate in my life, I've never had to face a giant of a health issue, as a lot of you have. I don't take that for granted, it's just the way it is. I've never had to face a giant of a health issue. Because of my own stubbornness, I came very close to facing one <laughs> last year. I was long overdue for a physical. Uh, you're supposed to go, at my age, I suppose, I don't think even every two years is good enough anymore. I think you're supposed to go every year. I'd been putting it off, putting it off, going for my physical. Thanks to my wife's constant, um, oh, what's the word? <laughs> Nagging. I went in last November finally for a physical. Now, if your wife turns out to be right, is it still nagging or no? And I only, I only want husband's perspectives on this, all right? Thanks to my wife's perfect encouragement, I went in for my physical last November. I've never had a problem with high blood pressure in my life. I plop my arm down on the table, the nurse takes my blood pressure, 157 over 105. I had no idea. Now that's not catastrophic. A lot of people have a lot higher blood pressure, but that's not good. They want you, what they told me was under 130 and under 90. 157 over 105 is not good. Had I not gone in when I did, might have taken a couple years, I could have been facing a giant of a stroke or a heart attack. I've been on, I'm on two medications now. At my last checkup, I was down to 124 over 84. Problem averted, okay? Well, now let's look at my blood work. My cholesterol numbers, never had high cholesterol. My overall number, I think it's supposed to be 200 or less. My cholesterol number is 221. At my last checkup, it was 214, which was a little bit better, but every other number involved in that is totally messed up. My triglycerides are way too high, my ratio is way off. Bang, I'm on cholesterol medicine. Now I go in Friday, we'll see how that's doing, if we have to try a different medicine, if we have to up the dose, but basically, caught the problem in time, no health crisis. I've been very fortunate that way. <coughs> but we all do face giants in our life. How do we deal with the giants? We're going to look at another example from the life of David when he faced a literal giant. The story's found in 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'd like to read a good portion of this, if you wouldn't mind, just to kind of set the stage for what we're talking about. In 1 Samuel 17, verse 3, it says, So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. Then Goliath, a Philistite champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was a giant of a man, measuring over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet and a coat of mail that weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leggings, and he slung a bronze javelin over his back. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. An armor bearer walked ahead of him, carrying a huge shield. Goliath stood and shouted across to the Israelites, 
Do you need a whole army to settle this? Choose someone to fight for you, and I will represent the Philistines. We will settle this dispute in single combat. If your man is able to kill me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel. Send me a man who will fight with me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Move down to verse 16. It says, For 40 days, twice a day, morning and evening, the Philistine giant strutted in front of the army of Israel. Now, in the meantime, David's father, Jesse, had sent him to the battlefield to bring supplies to his brothers. Verse 22, it says, David left his things with the keeper of supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, he saw Goliath, the champion from Gath, come out from the Philistine ranks, shouting his challenge to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen this giant, the men were asking? He comes out each day to challenge Israel. David talked to some of the others standing there to verify the report. What will a man get for killing this Philistine and putting an end to this abuse of Israel, he asked. Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he's allowed to defy the armies of the living God? But when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and dishonesty. You just want to see the battle. What have I done now, David replied. I was only asking a question. He walked over to some others and asked them the same thing and received the same answer. Then David's question was reported to King Saul, and the king sent for him. Don't worry about a thing, David told Saul. I'll go fight this Philistine. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There is no way you can go against this Philistine. You're only a boy. David begins to relate to Saul how he'd saved lambs from the mouth of lions and bears. Saul finally consents. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. Saul gives David his own armor. David has no use for it. He takes the armor off. Verse 40 says he picked up five smooth stones from a stream put them in his shepherd's bag, then armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across to fight Goliath. Goliath walked out toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here. I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. David shouted in reply, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. Then, and then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone will know that the Lord does not need weapons to rescue his people. It is his battle, not ours. The Lord will give you to us. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into his shepherd bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it from his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone, the stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face downward to the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine giant with only a stone and a sling. And since he had no sword, he ran over, pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. David used it to kill the giant and cut off his head. Now, in verse 4 of that passage, it says that Goliath was a Philistine champion. When I say the word champion, I think an image instantly pops into all of our heads. We all have an idea of what we would consider a champion to be. 
when I was a boy, there was none of this uh, mixed martial arts stuff then, and this cage fighting, boxing was the big thing. Boxing was very popular back then, and especially the heavyweight division. The heavyweight champion was possibly one of the most revered people on the face of the earth. He was the heavyweight champion. He was the best there was. Another one was the... Um, uh, there's an event in the Olympics called decathlon. It's where these athletes, most athletes specialize in one or other of the track and field events. The decathlon is a combination of 10 events where these men compete in these 10 different disciplines and whoever scores the most points through the 10 events, they don't necessarily have to win every event, but whoever gets the most points during the event is the Olympic decathlon champion. They're widely regarded as the world's greatest athlete. This is a champion. He's the best there is. He's undefeated. He's the only one still standing after all the others have fallen. He's not a novice. This is not his first battle. And this is what we see in Goliath. The Bible says he was a champion. This was a man so ferocious, a man so battle-tested, such a warrior that the entire Philistine army was willing to place their success or failure in the hands of this one man. He was such a mighty warrior that he stood between the two armies and literally held Israel at bay for 40 days because of their fear. Now, it would be bad enough if he was just this awesome warrior, but he also was literally a giant of a man. The measurement given in the King James Version says six cubits and a span. Six cubits and a span translates in feet and inches to nine feet, nine inches tall. Nine feet, nine inches. Now think about that for just a minute. From this floor to this ceiling is approximately eight feet, ten inches tall. Okay? Now if you doubt my measurement, I'll have you know that I measured it this morning for service. <laughs> It's 8 feet, 10 inches tall. Goliath was 9 feet, 9 inches tall. Add another 11 inches to the top of this ceiling, and you have what the Bible tells us Goliath's height was. I'm just a shade under 6 feet tall. Basically, I would stand here and look him right square in the belly button. This is a big guy. 9 feet, 9 inches tall. A giant of a man. A fearsome man. A ferocious man. It says his coat of armor alone weighed 125 pounds. That's not counting his brass helmet, not counting his bronze leggings. That's the coat of armor that he wore, 125 pounds. Men in this day weren't, on average, as big as they are now. Some of the men in the army probably only weighed 125 pounds. 125 pounds of armor. The tip of his spear weighed 15 pounds plus the weight of the shaft, which the account tells us was heavy and thick as a weaver's beam. Now, I don't think there's a person in this room that could stand up here with a 15-pound weight, throw it, and hit that back wall. That would be quite a task. We could maybe form it into a ball and roll it and hit the wall, but nobody here could throw a 15-pound weight, I believe, far enough to hit that back wall. Again, back to the, um, to the Olympic competition, are you all familiar with an event called the shot put? They take this little round ball and do their different gyrations, either take a run at it or it'll spin around in a circle, and they'll launch that ball and see how far they can throw it. The ball in men's competition weighs 16 pounds, similar to the Spear of Goliath. In all of the time that there's been Olympic competition and, and shot put competition, the world record of all these great athletes, the longest throw ever is 75 feet. 75 feet is five feet, now that's quite a chuck, don't get me wrong, but 75 feet is actually about five feet shorter than the outer dimension of this building. This building is about 80 feet, I believe it's 50 by 80. Five feet less than this building. This guy's spear 
The head of it alone weighs 15 pounds. This is a monstrous man. This is literally a giant that they have to deal with. So we've got this double-edged sword here. We have a physically imposing individual who also just happens to be a mighty warrior. Great. He happens to be a fierce man of battle. He's a champion. He's the best they have. This giant who stands and challenges the army of Israel twice a day for 40 days. Now, if we go back to verse 8. As Goliath issues his challenge in verse 8 of 1 Samuel, he taunts them, do you need a whole army? Just send one man out. We'll settle this man to man. Send a man out who will fight with me. Verse 11 says, when Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Terrified and deeply shaken. The King James Version said they were dismayed and greatly afraid. These guys' morale was gone. Their will was broken. They were confused. They were discouraged. They were scared. They were terrified. What's wrong here? This is the king of Israel, anointed by God. This is the army of Israel, God's chosen people. Why are they scared? Why are they terrified? I think we've got a good clue back in 1 Samuel. Chapter 16, verse 14, the Bible says, and this is before they gathered for this battle, the Bible says, now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul. Without the spirit of the Lord, it's a lot easier to be terrified by natural things. Even if the thing is somewhat unnatural, without the spirit of the Lord present, there's a greater chance you're going to be terrified by it. The spirit of the Lord had left Saul. If the spirit of the Lord would have been alive and active in Saul, and I think also in the army of Israel at this time, I think when they were faced with this giant, I really think they would have recalled their history. I think they would have recalled what their ancestors went through. They would have remembered how God brought their ancestors out of Egypt. They would remember how he brought them through the Red Sea and how the Egyptian army was destroyed when the sea fell on them. They would remember that the Lord went before them as a pillar of cloud by day and as a pillar of fire by night. They would have remembered the battle of Jericho, how they marched around the walls and the walls fell. They remembered all these great victories that they'd experienced. But because the spirit of the Lord had left them, they didn't remember those things. Without the spirit of the Lord, they saw a mortal man defying the army of God. They would have seen a heathen, a blasphemer, an enemy worthy of death. But they just saw a mortal man. They saw a warrior. They saw an insurmountable obstacle. They saw a giant. This is what they saw in their eyes. The fear of Saul and the Israelite army shows a loss of faith in the covenant promises of the Lord. On the basis of those covenant promises, Israel was never to fear her enemies, but she was to trust in the Lord. Their fear also shows the Israelites' search for security in a human king, as opposed to trusting in the Lord, had failed miserably. The Lord himself had pledged to be their savior. He would pledged to be their deliverer, to be their king. They chose instead a form of kingship that denied the covenant relationship with the Lord. Remember, they said to Samuel, we want a king, like all the other nations around us have. We want a king. And he pleaded with them not to do that, but they wanted a king. Well, in requesting a king like all the other nations have, what did they do? They broke the covenant with the Lord. They rejected the Lord who was their king, and they forgot his constant provision for their protection in the past. So in verse 11, we find Saul and the Israelites terrified and deeply shaken by one man. For 40 days, twice a day, morning and evening, the Philistine giant strutted in front of the Israelite army. I don't think Goliath needed more confidence, 
but I can just see him every day gaining more confidence. His, his taunts probably became more personal to the army of Israel. His insults more vicious. His attacks more pointed. He knows no one's coming to fight him. He knows no one wants anything to do with him. He can say whatever he wants. He can hurl any insult he wants, any derogatory comment he wants. No one's going to come out and push him back. They're not going to back him down. He knows they're all shaking in his boots. While this is going on, Jesse, David's father, sends David to the battlefield to bring some supplies to his brother. And in verse 22, again we see David leaves his supplies with the keeper of supplies. As he's talking with them, he saw Goliath, the champion, come out from the Philistine ranks, shouting his challenge. As soon as the Israelite army sees him, they begin to run away again. David talks to some of the others. Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he's allowed to defy the armies of the living God? David's older brother hears it and says, what are you doing here? He's angry. He says, what are you doing here anyway? He said, what about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? David defends himself. What have I done? I'm only asking a question. His question gets back to King Saul. David says, don't worry about a thing, he told Saul. I'll go fight this Philistine. Saul's response, much like David's brother, don't be ridiculous. There's no way you can go fight this Philistine. You're only a boy. You're just a boy. Once again, David, I think, experiences the indignity that he'd experienced different times in life. He's being judged solely on his youth, his experience, his age, his appearance. Okay? First of all, his brother is angered by his comments. And he says, what are you doing here? Why does his brother take this tone with David? What are you doing here anyway? I wonder if his brother was embarrassed and ashamed that he wasn't the one asking the question, who is this pagan Philistine anyway? Maybe he felt just a little pang of something. Hey, why, why, here's this little, and I think they figured David was probably about 16, a teenager. Why is this little twerp asking a question that I should be asking myself? Why aren't I out there saying, who is this pagan Philistine? Why ain't I going out to face him? Possibly, I don't know. Was Eliab jealous that he hadn't been anointed king? That David had been preferred by the Lord over him? I don't know. Saul says to David, David's very sincere, heartfelt, I'll go fight this Philistine. Saul says, don't be ridiculous. You can't fight him. You're only a boy. I think for David, these responses to him were probably just like when Samuel went to anoint to Jesse's house to anoint a new king of Israel. Seven sons of Jesse pass before Samuel, and seven sons of Jesse are rejected. Samuel says, are these all your sons? In 1 Samuel 16, Jesse said, they're still the youngest, but he's out in the field watching the sheep. He's the youngest. He's insignificant. You don't want to see him. He's not worthy to be king of Israel. He cannot be the Lord's anointed one. He's my youngest son. Jesse sends for him. Bible said he was ruddy, handsome, pleasant eyes. The Lord said, this is the one anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the olive oil he had brought, poured it on David's head, anointed him to be the king of Israel. David, being too young to serve in the army, being just a teenage boy, Saul must have thought, you're just a boy. You're just a heart-playing little sissy. You can't go out against Saul and defeat this great giant. But there was something different about David. What was it? Why did he view Goliath differently than everyone else did? Why wasn't David afraid? Why was David the only one who would stand and say, who is this Philistine who defies the armies of the living God? 
I think we find that also in 2 Samuel 16. Remember in verse 14 we read, Now the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul. In verse 13, when Samuel anointed David and poured the oil on his head, the Bible says, And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him from that day on. The Spirit of the Lord had left Saul. Saul was in fear of this giant. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. David was not afraid of the giant. The difference was the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord was active and alive in the life of David. The Spirit of the Lord was mighty upon David. That's why he didn't see a giant. He saw an enemy of the living God, an enemy that needed to be cut down, an enemy that needed to be destroyed. Saul says, no, you can't go out and fight him. David persists, tells him about saving the lamb from the mouth of the bear and the mouth of the lion. Saul finally relents and says, all right, go ahead. Now, I don't think, I don't believe that Saul told David to go out with complete confidence. I think Saul just had no other option. He's basically at the end of his rope. Saul's not going to go out and fight the giant. Nobody of his army is going to go out. They've had 40 days. If someone wanted to do something, they had plenty of time to do it. Nobody's going to go fight this giant. David was Saul's only hope. He was Saul's only hope. Saul gives David his armor. David says, I can't use these. He takes the armor off. It's no good to him. In verse 40, he picked up five smooth stones from a stream, put them in his shepherd's bag, then armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across to fight Goliath. Goliath walked out toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. David shouted in reply, You come to me with sword, spirit, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty. What does that mean? What does that really mean, I come to you in the name of the Lord? Six little words. Are they just words? Is it some kind of oath that they would say just to make themselves feel better, to build themselves up? Is it just a saying or is it something more? In the name of the Lord. For David, it's something much more than just a saying. All right? There are many within the name of the Lord is contained every provision that a person needs for their life. All right? Some of the meanings of the name of the Lord mean covenant-keeping God. It means the Lord who sanctifies. It means the Lord most high. It means the Lord who heals. It means the Lord my peace. It means the Lord my shepherd. The name of the Lord means the Lord is present. One of the names is Jehovah Jireh. That means the Lord will provide. That's found in Genesis 22:14. The Bible says, And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah Jireh. The New Living Translation says, Abraham named the place the Lord will provide. This place was memorialized by Abraham when God provided the ram for a sacrifice so he didn't have to sacrifice his own son Isaac. The Lord provided a sacrifice. So Jehovah Jireh is the Lord will provide. There's another one, Jehovah Nisai. That's the Lord our banner. Exodus 17:15 says Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisai. And translated, that means the Lord, my banner. This name was given after Israel's battle with the Amalekites. You remember the story when Moses stood on the hill and he raised his arms? And when his arms were raised, the Israelite army was successful. But he grew weary and tired and his arms dropped. And then the Amalekite army would begin to get the momentum. So Aaron and Hur sat Moses down. And they stood there and held his arms up so the Israelite army could see him. And with his arms raised, the Israelite army prevailed over the Amalekites. 
This name has to do with warfare. It has to do with a God who's willing to wage warfare on our behalf. This is what David had. This is what the name of the Lord meant to David. So when David said, I come against you in the name of the Lord, it wasn't just something his parents taught him to say. This wasn't, now I lay me down to sleep. All right? He was literally saying, I come against you in the name of the Lord, who is a covenant-keeping God. I come against you, Goliath, in the name of the Lord, who sanctifies. I come against you in the name of the Lord, who is my shepherd. I come against you in the name of the Lord, who is present. I come against you in the name of the Lord, who is the Most High God. I come against you in the name of the Lord, who heals. I come against you in the name of the Lord, my peace. I come against you in the name of the Lord, who will provide. And I come against you in the name of the Lord, who is my banner. Amen? Amen. That's how we come in, in the name of the Lord. It carried some weight when David said it. There was power in it. In verse 46, he said, Today the Lord will conquer you. I will kill you. I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals. The whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. And everyone will know that the Lord does not need weapons to rescue his people. It is his battle, not ours. The Lord will give you to us. Verse 48, as Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. He quickly ran out. When the giant advanced, David didn't back up. He ran out to meet him. This giant who had criticized the army of Israel and the living God, who had insulted, who had threatened them, who had so paralyzed the army of Israel that no one would accept the challenge, David ran to meet him. He ran to fight the giant. He ran to do battle with the giant because of the provision that was contained when he spoke the word in the name of the Lord. He had full confidence that God was with him. No fear, no wavering, no what have I gotten myself into here? While everyone else cowered in fear, David ran to the battle. Full of faith, full of hope, full of confidence. Verse 49, reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it from his sling, hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in, Goliath stumbled and fell face down to the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a stone and a sling. David's faith caused him to look at his giant from a different perspective than everyone else had looked at him with. To David, who come in the name of the Lord, Goliath was merely a mortal man defying an all-powerful God. David looked at this battle from God's point of view. Viewing a difficult situation from God's point of view helps us put giant problems into perspective. When we have a proper perspective, we see more clearly, we fight more effectively. Someone once said that Israel thought Goliath was too big to fight. David thought Goliath was too big to miss. So he went and fought. So what can we learn from David in facing our own giants? What can we learn? I think, number one, we need to recognize that we all have giants in our lives. Hardships, seemingly insurmountable obstacles, temptations, but every giant can be defeated. Now, what I don't want you to hear this morning when I say every giant can be defeated, let's be honest. Sometimes the giant wins the battle, all right? If you've been in a battle and the giant won, don't hear me saying this morning that you did something wrong, that you messed up, that the Spirit of the Lord wasn't with you, that you weren't right with the Lord, all right? Anyone ever been to a funeral? Sometimes the giant wins the battle. My point is not that you have to win every battle to be out, you know, in right standing with the Lord. My point is how the posture and the position and the attitude we take when we attack the giant in our life. All right? Everybody understand that? Okay. So it's not that we can never lose, but every giant can be defeated. 
We need to know that the battle belongs to the Lord. It's not our battle. We may have a responsibility in the battle. It may be our responsibility to attack the giant in our life, but the battle is not ours. 1 Samuel 17, 47 said, This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. Giants sometimes defeat us over and over because we fight in our own strength. We need to realize that it's the Lord's battle. Three, attack your giant. David, the word says, quickly ran out to meet him. Attack your giant. Goliath had come into the actual territory of the Israelites. If you tolerate a giant, he'll take over your territory. He'll come and sit right on your doorstep. Don't run from a giant. Don't negotiate with the giant. Don't try and figure out a way that you can coexist, coexist with the giant. Attack a giant. Amen? Attack the giant. Realize you can't defeat it in your own strength. Call on God. Pray for his power and attack. We need to have the mentality that Joshua and Caleb had when they faced their giants. I know last year I talked a lot about Joshua and Caleb. Well, I'm going to talk about them again. All right? In Numbers 13 and 14, after they'd explored the land with the other ten spies, they saw everything the other ten spies had saw. They saw the wondrous, beautiful things that the land had to offer. They saw the giants in the land. As the other ten spies give a bad report, we can't take this land. There's giants there. Joshua and Caleb stand before the whole congregation of Israel, and they say things like, let's go at once to take the land. We can surely conquer it. They say, don't be afraid of the people of the land. They are helpless prey to us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. What are Joshua and Caleb doing? What are they saying here? Have they lost their minds? Absolutely not. They were going in the name of the Lord, just as, just as David went before Goliath in the name of the Lord. Joshua and Caleb basically were walking right up to that giant, looking him right square in the belly button, and saying, buddy, you don't stand a chance. You don't have a prayer, fella. You better pack a bag and get off my land. Because if you're here when I get back, you're going to die. I don't care if it takes me 40 years to get back here. If you're here when I get back, you're going to die. That's what they were saying to the giant. That's what we need to say to our giants. That's how you deal with a giant. You never give up. You attack. Now, if you are weary from a battle and you need rest, rest. The Lord provided green pastures, and the Lord provided still waters for a reason. The Lord restores our soul for a reason. If you're weary from battle and you need to rest, rest. But once you're restored, attack. You guys' mom prayed for your dad for what, six years for his salvation? For six years she prayed for her husband to be saved. Never quit. I'm sure she got weary in those prayers and in that battle, but she never quit. Six years later, he accepted the Lord as his Savior. She prayed her entire life that every one of her children would serve the Lord, and she died not seeing that come to pass. But guess what? Every one of her children now serve the Lord. Never quit up. Never quit. Never give up. Let me tell you something about my dad. And I think, to the best of my recollection, I've never shared this story with anybody. For those that don't know, in December 2010, my dad suffered a ruptured aneurysm. He had surgery. He somehow, in the, in the health he was in, lived through that surgery, but he died from complications of it 16 days later. He died on December 23, 2010, almost seven years ago already. On the night he got sick, he was just fine. I mean, as fine as it got for him at that point. He was 82 years old, very poor health. He, he didn't have a day where he really felt good anymore. But, but on this particular night, it was no different than any other one. He didn't feel any worse 
than he did any other time. It was just how he normally felt at that point. He was probably sitting at home watching Wheel of Fortune. He, he watched that every night. All of a sudden, he was hit with a tremendous pain down in the waist area here. He had fallen in the bedroom from the pain. Uh, Mom couldn't get him up, so she called the ambulance. They took him to the hospital in Red Wing. She calls us. We were home and said, your dad's on the way to the hospital. So we went there, and we walked in the room, and they'd already done, I I think, a a CAT scan or something or an MRI to see what the problem was. The doctor comes in the room, very sorrowful look on his face, and tells him that he'd had an aneurysm that was bleeding. Now, it wasn't really a surprise to us because he had, we knew of two aneurysms that he already had, that he'd been walking around with. He had one, Rose, if I get way off track here in my medical terms, you reel me in, okay? He had one aneurysm, the aorta comes out of your heart, comes up, makes a curve, and then goes back down. That's called the aortic arch. He had one aneurysm right in there, which I don't think anyone would touch you know, on a man of his age with a 10-foot pole. As the aorta comes down farther into the abdomen, he had a second aneurysm there. He was led to believe by the doctors that these two were of the type, I believe they were on the outside wall of the artery. If they would have ruptured, I think you have basically a few minutes and you'll bleed to death. Okay? Well, he had a third one that none of us knew about. He didn't even know about it. The aorta comes down to a point and then splits into what's called the right and left iliac artery. His aneurysm, number one, it was in that artery. Number two, it wasn't on the outside wall. It was on the inner wall. It was something they call a dissecting aneurysm, where there's a tear, and then blood begins to move between the walls of the artery. It's still a very serious, it's a life-threatening situation, but as opposed to the other type of aneurysm, you do have a chance to get to the hospital and give them an opportunity to correct it. The doctor comes in, explains to him what happened. He says, as nice and professional as he can be, I think we need to fly to Rochester to see if we can do something about this. He said, otherwise, it's going to get really ugly here in about an hour. As I said, it was his professional way of saying, you're going to die if you just lay here and don't do anything about this. You're going to die. So he flies to Mayo. He goes into the operating room. Now, we... We go outside, we watch the helicopter take off and go, I figured I'd never see him alive again. I mean, like I said, this was a bad situation. We get in the car, begin to drive to Rochester. It's about probably an hour from Red Wing to the hospital in Rochester. As we're coming up on Zombrota, my phone rings. And I thought, well, he's gone already. Not being negative, but just the situation. This was a serious situation. This was a life-threatening situation. The phone rings, I pass it back to my wife because I don't, talk on the phone when I'm driving the car. She answered the phone. It was one of the EMTs from the helicopter. She said that dad had went in a surgery. His blood pressure was very low. I mean, he literally probably had minutes to live. They rolled him into surgery. The doctor met him there, and she looked at him. She said, Mr. Stockwell, you have a bad heart, you have bad lungs, and this is a very risky procedure. She said, do you want us to proceed? My dad looked at the doctor and said, go ahead. God knows what he's doing. I thought about that for a long time. God knows what he's doing. Why did he say it that way? Because it, it seemed like he just said something else. Oh, it's in the Lord's hands, or God's will be done. You know, Go ahead. God knows what he's doing. Why did he say it that way? This was the greatest giant that my dad had ever faced in his life, the greatest health crisis he'd ever had, something that probably was going to take his life. Now, my dad had a 
There are other people who have more health issues than my dad had, but most people have not had as many health problems as my dad had. Okay, he'd wrecked both of his knees by the time he was 20 years old. They were so bad that after being drafted into the army in 1952, he had to be medically discharged three months later because he couldn't do the drilling and what was required of a soldier. So they were shot. In 1964, working for Pierce County Highway Department, he was in the county shop up in Ellsworth. He got run over by a tractor. Because of his bad knees, I mean, it hurt him just to get up and down off a tractor. So he developed this very bad habit of standing between the front and rear wheel of a tractor, pulling the gear shift out of gear, wiggling it to make sure it was in neutral, then he'd turn the key on and start the tractor. Well, it worked great every time. Well, guess what? Today it didn't work great. He pulled the lever, thought he had it in neutral, turned the key on, started the tractor, the tractor immediately began to crawl forward. It caught his foot right away, knocked him down underneath the tractor, it rolled up over, I believe it come over his right side, all the way up his right leg, across his waist, over his shoulder, over, he, he put his arm up instinctively to protect his head and threw his head out of the way. The wheel missed his head, but went all the way over him, broke his pelvis, broke several ribs, broke his arm. Two weeks in the hospital, three or four months of you know convalescing at home, he's back to work. He had his first knee surgery in 1972. They damaged a nerve for six months. He could not pick up his right foot. He had to wear a, a brace that went around the bottom of his shoe that would hold his foot up. In 1984, he had a double knee replacement, both knees on the same day. His theory was two knees aren't going to hurt any more than one. So <laughs> this was a tough old bird, let me tell you. Two aren't going to hurt any worse than one. So I'm going to have them both done the same day. In 1998 and 2001, he had each knee re-replaced. In 1998, as they're doing some tests on him, because he'd, he'd already been diagnosed with emphysema, they were doing some tests on him to see, because of the emphysema in his lungs, if he'd be able to come off the breathing tube all right, having this second knee surgery. They discover a leaking aortic heart valve. Now it's not a question as if, if he can be put under for surgery. He has to be. He's going to die if he doesn't have the surgery. He might die if he does, if he couldn't come off the breathing tube. He has an aortic valve replaced and a uh, bypass done. Comes off it just beautifully. From that point on, it was just one thing after another, three or four different pacemakers, um, different minor procedures that he had to go in, all of that. And on December 7, 2010, a ruptured aneurysm. The greatest health giant he's ever faced in his life. The biggest battle he's ever faced. The most ferocious enemy. Nobody can survive this. I'm sure he felt, being a realistic man, they were going to put him to sleep for the surgery, and he was never going to wake up on this earth again. And he says, go ahead. God knows what he's doing. What's he doing? I finally figured it out after all these years. He's looking that giant right in the eye, and he's saying, get off my land. Get off my land. Even in an impossible situation, get off my land. He knows full well, as we know full well, that one day, and for him he thought it was probably that very night, one day that giant called death is going to win the battle. We're going to lose to it, and this body's going to die. It's going to end our life on this earth. But he tells the giant, get off my land. You know why? Because there was more to his fight than just his physical body. Get off my land. You can have this body, giant, but you can't have my soul. You have no right to my soul. You have no claim to it. You haven't bought and paid for it. Someone else has. And that thing you want most, you can't have. Get off my land. 
get your hands off my inheritance. You can't have it. It belongs to someone else. It belongs to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Glenda, what did you say when you were diagnosed? That number that you gave was 80 or 90? Yeah. 112. And then it went down to 13. 112, this number of the cells or whatever that means. I don't know what it means. 112. She goes through treatment. They check the number again, 13. It's time to have another test. Glenda says, I'm praying for zero. They say it'll never be zero. It's impossible. Glenda says, I'm praying for zero. She has her test, and you go from 13 to what, 12? She goes from 13 to 12. I'm praying for zero. No, Glenda, you're not hearing me. It's never going to be zero. Glenda says, I'm still praying. She stood right up here that day and told us, I'm still praying for zero. What's she doing? She's looking her giant right in the eye and saying, get off my land. You have no place here. You have no claim here. Get off my land. Oh, amen. You remember when David said, I come to you in the name of the Lord, and we talked about what that meant? That's how we come. We come in the name of Jesus Christ. When we say in the name of Jesus, as I said, the name of the Lord to David contained all those things. Think sometime about what the name of Jesus contains for us. What the name of Jesus means to us. The name of Jesus is wonderful. It's counselor. It's mighty God. It's the everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's our Messiah. He's Emmanuel. Jesus said of himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the first and the last. I'm the bread of life. I'm the door. I'm the light of the world. I'm the way, truth, and life. I am the resurrection and the life. A name so high, so powerful, Philippians says he is a name that's above every other name. So much so that at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow one day, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the power that's contained in the name of Jesus. When we speak the name of Jesus, when we tell something to get lost in the name of Jesus, when we say sickness be gone in the name of Jesus, that's the power that we possess. Amen? So look at that giant in your life and tell him to get off your land and don't ever stop. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, we just thank you today, Lord. Though we know there's giants in our life, you've made a way, Lord. Your name and your power and what you provide for us, Lord, are greater than any giant we face. And Father, even if we lose a battle to a giant, we're still secure in you. And we thank you for that. I just pray that you would energize us, Lord. Charge us today, Father. Give us a new attitude, Lord God. A new, a new posture as we attack the giants in our life. Help us to be attackers, Lord. Help us to not coexist, not to negotiate with a giant, but to attack, Lord, to drive them off the land. We just thank you for it. We give you praise in Jesus' name. All the people said amen. 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 Don't ever stop telling your giant to get off your land. Keep loading the rocks and keep swinging the sling.